Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, and the message is our gathering to Christ. The doctrine of, of, of the rapture is being attacked today by many churches. I don't know if you're aware of that. We at Calvary Chapel believe and teach pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, that the church will be removed before the time of God's wrath poured out upon the seven years of tribulation, the hour specifically of Revelation 3.10. The coming of Jesus for us in the rapture is called the blessed hope in Titus 2.13. In chapter 2 here of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Paul deals with the heart of the epistle, the purpose of the letter. Someone had declared that the day of the Lord had come already in verse 2. More specifically, this unique section provides us with information about the man of sin found nowhere else in Scripture from chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. Peter tells us that already in his day, some men were twisting the Scriptures of Paul to their own destructions in 2 Peter 3.16. Today, people are twisting the Scriptures to their own destruction. So if they were doing it back then, they've been doing it all along. They're going to do it worse in the latter days. It's just simple. Paul had um, gone into great detail about the study of end things, eschatology, a big word for the study of end things. In spite of his brief three-week stay that we know of in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1, 2 Thessalonians 5, 5, 2, 5, and when we find in the book of Acts, only three weeks. And he spoke to him about, about the rapture, about the, the second coming, about the Antichrist, about the temple being built, all kinds of stuff. Three weeks old, that's all. So let's look at Paul, who gives comfort as a faithful pastor to the Thessalonians here, in view of a false teaching about the day of the Lord by three, a threefold declaration. Let me read here, verse 1 through 3. Next month I won't have to do this. I'll get cut to third, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for the day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition." The threefold declaration about the day of the Lord is as follows. First, Paul reminded them of what they knew. Verse 1, what they knew. Second, Paul reproved them for what they had believed. Verse 2. And thirdly, Paul re-instructed them on what they had forgotten. Verse 3. Paul reminded them of what they knew, the foundation to remember. That comes first. Verse 1. Look at it. Paul reminded them of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The community of God's redeemed are those addressed here. The believer, brethren, underline that. He's talking to Christians. The word coming, parousia, means the presence and was used for a royal visit of the ruler of Rome, a manifested deity also. They had been waiting for the Lord Jesus from heaven, who had delivered them from the wrath to come. He already told us that in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. They were pagans. They left their idols. Paul had communicated his hope and joy with them at the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 already to them. And Paul also said that their 
dead loved ones would return with Jesus as we were raptured into the clouds in First Thessalonians 4, uh, 14 and 15. So he's already given them a lot of instructions in the first epistle. And in spite of all that, now he's writing the second epistle on things that they should have known and knew already, but they were acting contrary to them. Notice still in verse 1, Paul reminded them of their gathering together to him, Jesus. Paul qualifies the coming, the word is parousia, of Jesus, our gathering together to him. Make that distinction. That is distinct from coming back with him. Being gathered to him and coming back with him is two different things. Gathering to him is the rapture. Coming back with him is the second coming. Are we clear on that? Real simple distinction. Okay? Doesn't even need exposition. They had been concerned over their dead loved ones as part of the Lord's coming, as we already mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. They had died. They didn't know how they would fit in. Paul says, don't worry about them. When Jesus comes, you'll bring them with them. We'll get caught up. We'll meet them in the clouds. They now are concerned about their own gathering to Christ since someone had declared that the day of the Lord had already come. All right? The phrase are gathering together means gathering of saints as a corporate body for worship. The phrase appears only one other time in the New Testament as a strong reproof against those who would forsake the gathering of the church in Hebrews 20, 20, 10, 25. We're not to forsake the gathering. Now, there's a lot of people that don't go to church. A lot of people don't come to midweek. This place should be packed out on midweek. We have three services. Sunday night is half filled. We should be here. People forsake the gathering of the saints for many things. You know, if you just ate breakfast, not lunch or dinner, you might do it for a day or two, but you're going to get sick and anemic, right? And somehow we think that we can get by with just a little hors d'oeuvre of Christ on, uh, once a week. And then things start happening. We start going, oh, oh. It's not good. Believe it or not, we need each other. We really do. Now, the phrase are gathering together. Uh, A.T. Robertson discovered its use in the island of Simi, of Caria, to mean collection. So Jesus collects his church at the rapture. Paul had told them the Lord would descend from the clouds and they would be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and always be with him in chapter 4, verse 17 and 18 of 1 Thessalonians. So they knew this, and yet they're, they're, they're acting contrary to what they knew. The phrase caught up is remember, it means harpazo. It means to be to cease violently, suddenly being translated from one location to another. The Latin counterpart is the word rapiri, which we get our word rapture. It comes from the Latin word. Harpazo is the Greek word. It means suddenly, violently, joltingly, from one location to the other. And of the 13 times that that word appears in the New Testament, every time you see it with a translocation of an object or the person from one place to another. I'm going to give you just three or four examples of the 13. They're all the same. The parable of the sower, seed went, the seed was cast by the wayside, fell on the wayside, and birds came up and harpazled it to the air, from the earth to the sky. Harpazled, suddenly, violently. Okay? 
Philip, um, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, remember, uh, was, he was baptized by Philip and he took him in the water and then he, Philip was harpassled over to Azotus in Acts 8, 39 and 40. Miraculously. Paul was harpassled in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 to the third heaven, from the earth to the heaven. Suddenly, violently. The woman with a child in Revelation 12, 5, Israel. The child was harpazled up to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father on his throne. Every time it means that. So why should the rapture mean anything different? <laughs> In verse 14 through 16 of First Thessalonians 4. The gathering is the same thing. If you remember how many Christians were so shaken up at Y2K. In the year 2000. Freaking out. When they know the scriptures, God's on the throne. And they start believing these crazy prophecies. You might remember the latest one, the blood moon. Where's the false prophets? They're all over. Nothing happened. Anytime somebody sends you over these signs and wonders for the Lord's coming... Those signs and wonders are going to happen once the rapture takes place, ladies and gentlemen. If you're looking for their signs, then you're denying the rapture. It's real simple. There's many so-called raptures. Translations in the Old Testament. Enoch, Genesis 5, 23, 24. He was removed from the earth because it says the commentary in Hebrews 11, 5 is that he pleased God. He never died. He was taken to heaven. Elijah was harpazled, if you will. He ascended up in the whirlwind, into heaven. He never died. Second Kings 2.11, the prophets knew that. They, they told that to him. And then in um, let me give you the scripture here. Yeah, 2 Kings 2.5 and 2 Kings 2.11. And he was caught up to the, in the whirlwind. So he never died. He was removed suddenly. Uh, Jesus was also kind of raptured when um, uh, he spoke to the disciples in Acts uh, chapter 1 verse 9. And, um, and they saw him out and he, they re- and he went into his, before their sight and he went up to heaven, right? It wasn't real fast, but it was continuous, right? He kept going. Also, verse 10 and 11. You remember Philip. We mentioned him already in Acts 8. After he baptized the Ethiopian, he was hypothesized over to Sodas in Acts 8, 35 through 38. Luke tells us, listen, in Acts uh, 8, 3 through 9, he says, Now when he came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, hypothesized. The eunuch saw him no more. You have Paul, again, 2 Corinthians 12, 2. He went from earth to heaven. He saw and heard things not lawful to be uttered. Same word. Jesus, just before going to the cross, mentioned to his disciples that he was leaving. But would come back for his own, being the first time the rapture was taught by Jesus. You want to listen to it? John 14, 1 through 3. Listen carefully. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many... 
mansions or abiding places, either one. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You must make a distinction, receiving us to himself, from coming back with him to set up the kingdom. There's the first mention of the rapture. So people say, well, you know, it's not the word rapture isn't there, and, and it's a recent doctrine. Shut up, recent doctrine. How about Jesus Christ? How about Paul the Apostle? That's recent? I don't really care about church history, what they have forgotten to teach for 400, 700, 1200, 800 years. I'm embarrassed about church history. The only church history I'm interested in is the book of Acts. Because that's inspired. The rest is just an embarrassment through religions. That's all it is. Jesus warns his disciples about the tribulation and great tribulation to be ready. Listen to Luke twenty one thirty six. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things and will come to pass that you stand before the Son of Man and escape these things. Very clear. Tribulation, great tribulation. Paul, Peter, James, and all the early church believed in the rapture. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18. Paul, as we pointed out, comforted the believers that were sorrowing after their own loved ones, thinking that they would miss out on, on, on the rapture. How would they fit in? And Paul comforts them. Jesus is bringing them back. James in the first church council, you remember, in Acts 15, 13 through 16, he says, And after this they had become silent. James answered them, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out for himself a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up again. First what? Visit the Gentiles to take a people for himself. The church. Raptured. Then, rebuild the tabernacle of David after that. Makes a distinction. There were those who believed and taught pre-tribulation, rapture. Just as Jesus and the apostles did, being delivered to escape the wrath to come. Prior to the second coming. Throughout history, people say, well, nobody ever taught it. Really? Let me give you some documentation. Shepherds of Hermes, A.D. 150, showed the second century Christians believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. Victorious, A.D. 240 taught the rapture. Cyprian, A.D. 250, taught the church would be snatched up, his words, before the Antichrist. Ephraim and Syrian, A.D. 373, taught the rapture occurred before the seven-year tribulation period. The rapture, Dr. Ken Johnson um, has a whole bunch of stuff in there. We've had him here for one of the Simple Truth Doctrines seminars. Now, James Darby in the 1800 was not the first to teach the rapture or any other person but merely brought back the teaching of the early church. And you will hear that. Well, you know, it started with Darby and he put it together. No, it wasn't. You got to go back to Jesus. You got to go back to Paul. They use, uh, they build a straw man. They knock him down. They say, there, see? The first century church fathers believed in a, and taught premillennial. Listen carefully. Papias, fragment 6, says, After the resurrection of the dead, Jesus will personally reign for a thousand years. He was taught uh, this from the Apostle John. You know, he's an apostle, his disciple, right? So John believed it, he believed it, they both taught it. Lactantius 
epitome, what a name, of Divine Institute 72 says this, quote, there will be a future thousand-year reign of Christ, millennial kingdom. They believe in it. Justin Martyr, Dialogue 32, 81, 110 said, the man of sin spoken by Daniel will rule two, three times and a half, before the second advent, there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, a man of apostasy who speaks strange things against the Most High, shall venture to do unlawful deeds on the earth against the believers. He believed in the millennial and a great tribulation prior to that. You heard it right there. Irenaeus against heresies, 524, 26, 30, and 35 mentions the tribulation period. The Antichrist, the ten-nation Daniel, and the rebuilt temple says this. Listen, quote, These are all literal things, and Christians who allegorize them are immature Christians. I like that. <laughs> Give that to Hank Hanegraaff, who supposedly is a, a shepherd, but he's a wolf. Interesting. Tertullian, Marcion, 3, 5, 25, 5, 16 says, quote, There will be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, the millennial reign, resurrection, and the new Jerusalem are literal. In the resurrection, we shall then be changed in a moment in a substance like the angels. The Antichrist will be a man who sits in a real temple. Wow. So where's the evidence they didn't teach this? That I did dig this up by my backyard? Origin against Celsus, 249, 624, 46 says this, quote, Paul mentions the Antichrist as a literal person who works false miracles. There is a literal future Antichrist coming. The prophecies in 1 Thessalonians and in Daniel are real prophecies about the end of the world. There will be a literal rebuild temple. The relationship of these men and the apostles is amazing. Listen carefully. Justin Martyr and Irenaeus studied under Polycarp. Polycarp worked with the apostle John for over 20 years in ministry. I just quoted them, guys. Who am I going to believe, them or somebody at Fuller Cemetery? Or Biola or APU or Talbot? Just because they have a Ph.D. in front of their name, they can keep the Ph.D. They're going to need it when they face Christ. Irenaeus also testified that he occasionally saw the Apostle John himself. So we can verify without a shadow of a doubt that the premillennialist was the standard teaching of the church fathers from Papias, A.D. 70, to Lactantius in about 285. And in 312, what happened? You have Constantine who marries the church to the world and you have the beginning of the Catholic Church that corrupted everything. Simple. Simple, corrupt history. It wasn't until the 4th century that the church as a whole changed its doctrine from premillennialism to a amillennialism, which means no thousand years. It's called Schism of Nippos. Interesting, because the Catholic Church believes that she's the vicar of Christ and that she was going to reign for a thousand years and then Christ will return. But oops, after a thousand, they had to change it a little bit, right? But they still have their doctrine, right? Let me tell you, the Catholic Church is gangbusters right now. It is like a lion right now. 
deceiving all kinds of people. You guys are familiar with Hagen, right? With Copeland. He just bowed his knee to the Pope and pledged all the Protestants coming back to the Catholic Church. Look up the video on YouTube. Copeland speaking to the Pope. This last one, the Argentinian. (laughs) Ecumenicalist. It's an incredible falling away from within the church, ladies and gentlemen. And Peter warned us about it. Paul warned us about it. Jesus warned us about it. And it's happening through the emergent church and the extreme positive confession, the third wave of the tonto blessing up there. I mean, amazing what's going on right in the midst of us. And people are asleep in the church as much as people are asleep in the world over Islam. It's the exact same parallel. The one inside the church is much dangerous. Because this one deals with eternal life. The the other one only with physical life. Paul reminded them all of all they knew. The foundation to remember. They already knew this. The foundation to remember. Now notice secondly. Paul in verse 2. Reproved them for what they had believed. The folly to reject. In verse 2, Paul reproved them for being soon shaken in mind or troubled by discounting what they knew. Paul describes their immediate reaction to the false teaching. He describes the reaction as soon. Underline that little word. It denotes a hasty reaction. You know what we're talking about. Sometimes we do stupid things, right? Rather than thinking, we, we react. Then we go, oh, I should have waited. Why did I do that? He then describes the effect as shaken, to waver, agitate, topple, a restless tossing as a ship not secured to the mooring of the pier. The word is used for John by Jesus. Who did, who did you go see? A reed shaken in the wind, Matthew eleven seven. Same word. The word is used by Peter at Pentecost of David who would not be shaken because the Lord was at his right hand in Acts 2.25. Notice he describes the activity as taking place in their mind. Circle that word, mind, nous, referring to the reasoning aspect, giving equilibrium to thought balance. The word is found 24 times in the New Testament. All are Paul's except for three. J.B. Phillips Paraphrase says, keep your heads and not be thrown off your balance. See, we have to be careful how we think and what we think. If we don't think biblically, we get all freaked out. If we, we sow to the flesh in our minds, then we reap to the flesh, right? And then we're crying about what we're reaping. Well, what are you sowing? If you sow beans, don't expect cherries or watermelons or licorice. Paul describes their continuous state of agitation since embracing the false teaching. He says they were troubled. The word comes from the word to wail. This freaked them out. It's like you have been taught that we're going to be raptured. And so things start happening. Like the trade center and different things all over our nation. And you all start, you start saying, oh man, maybe there is no rapture. Have somebody smack you. <laughs> Don't 
walk by your feelings, your emotion, what you see. You walk by what you know the scriptures reveal. You think the people in World War II under Hitler didn't think that it was the end of the world? You think they didn't think he was the Antichrist? But if they knew the scriptures, they knew he wasn't. Okay? The nation of Israel hadn't been established. And there was no temple, and that wasn't in Jerusalem. Real simple. The ideas of ongoing condition of a fragile stability emotionally and mentally. You just let your mind go, ladies and gentlemen. You just give in to fear. You just get freaked out. You'd be on Prozac. Because we don't look to the Lord. We don't trust the Lord. The present tense points to their state of alarm. The word is found three times in the New Testament. And all three are used regarding the end times and the Lord's return. Matthew 24, 6, Mark 13, 7, and right here. Now notice still in two, Paul reproved them for believing that the teaching was, listen, from them. He reproved them. How could you believe that I wrote this? If I wrote this, I'm contradicting what I told you in the first letter. Come a little closer. What's the matter with you? Common sense. He says they should not be soon shaken in mind or trouble, even if the revelation came by spirit first, he says. Spirit is most likely indicating a prophetic utterance. That means that someone got up and said, Thus saith the Lord, we're in the tribulation or whatever. Whatever anybody says, Thus saith the Lord. That's a warning sign right away. <laughs> Second of all, you judge what he says to the scriptures. And if he says something contrary to the scriptures, he's a false prophet. Simple. You believe it, then maybe you're a false believer. We're not grounded. One of the two. Paul had already exhorted them to judge all things rather than to refute prophecy in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. So we're open to prophecy. We're open for God to speak, but we judge it by the word of God. He said they should not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, even if the revelation was from the word of God. So first he says, so in other words, we don't know how it came. He mentions three ways that are possible, but he mentions three. Only he knows which way it came. But for whatever reason, he gives us three ways. By the word. The word here denotes the act of teaching and communicating a teacher of the word of God. So it could have come by somebody teaching, coming into the church and teaching. Do you know how many people call me to teach? They want to come. Hey, can we come in? No, we can't come here. What's the matter with you? Like somebody calling your house. Hey, can I come and spend the night? No, you can't come spend my house. What's the matter with you? We have teachers here. The body's raised up teachers. We, 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 we give our kids to our own and we, we teach our own. We don't, we don't depend on somebody outside. I can't even trust a lot of the Calvary Chapel to come and teach. You know, I don't have a lot of people here, right? Because you guys know Chuck's dead, right? <laughs> Everything's changed. There seem to have been a group of people who were against an opposing song doctrine. And they were breaking fellowship. He tells us that in chapter 3, verse 14 of this epistle. And there are always those. Right now, another movement that's real strong within the church is neo-Orthodox or Reformed theology, Calvinism. It's a poison. It'll destroy you. 
It'll make you sterile. All your life, instead of preaching the gospel to non-believers, you'll be wanting to convert believers into Calvinism. It's crazy. Then notice he says that you should not be soon shaken in mind or trouble, even if by revelation by a letter. So there's the third option. The apostle wrote letters to the various churches as they had their need, as you know, and that's why they were written. And someone had written a letter, perhaps uh, in the apostle's name, a forgery. And they did that at times. Um, that is why he closes his letter with, uh, as he does. Listen how he closes the letter in chapter 317. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. He wanted them to know that this one was really his. Satan can transform himself into an angel of light, as you know. As well as his minister, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. How are you going to know who's speaking to you if you know the word of God? If you don't know the word of God, you're a dead man. It's real simple. The proclamation of another gospel is of the severest punishment. Paul says, let him be anathema, the strongest word, damnation in the Greek. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. He says it twice. I feel um, sorry for these false teachers that are all over the church today. I feel sorry for these professors that sway young Christians away from their biblical faith to this emergent trash and everything else that follows it. God help professors and all these people that... Uh, are looking for fame and glory and corrupt the word of God. Notice still in two, Paul reproved them for believing that the day of the Lord had come. That's the bottom line. Paul had already told them the day of the Lord would come as a thief in the night to the unbeliever, but not to the believer in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4. He had already told them that. That's even the night to us, not to the non-believer. Now, Paul also told them that day was the outpouring of God's wrath to the world. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, in chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. The day of the Lord is not determined by a local or national situation. The day of the Lord is not determined by personal suffering. The day of the Lord is determined by a worldwide lawlessness and God's wrath such as never has ever been before, Matthew twenty four twenty one. That things will get worse in America and think the utter worst we can get, that doesn't mean the tribulation has happened because it's only happening in America. When this stuff happens, it's all over the world. It is God's wrath Poured out on the world. Everything is being set up right now. Jerusalem is becoming a more troublesome stone to the whole world, according to the prophecy of Zechariah. We, as an administration in Washington, they hate Israel. They're opposed to Israel. They've hung out Israel to dry. The whole world hates Israel. Israel is alone right now. Russia is right on their northern borders. The Chinese now are there also. Iran wants to blow them off the face of the earth and then come after us. 
So things are lining up. Ezekiel 38 and 39 can happen. But it hasn't happened. And the world's pretty bad. The world has never been at the critical point that it is right now. Because the condition of the world is worldwide. Because of communications. Because of video. The day of Christ is synonymous with the rapture and the day of the Lord. The catching up of the saints in the air. The gathering together to Jesus Christ. It happens at the same time. The rapture happens right now. The day of the Lord begins. It's the day of Christ. You remember there was a young prophet sent by God to Jeroboam the first to give specific instructions for his apostasy. And, um, and as he prophesied against the altar at Bethel, and Jeroboam's arm withered and he prayed and he healed him and then he went out. And God told him, don't come back the same way, just keep going. Then he went on and then an old prophet found out he was there and asked his son, hey, where was he? He's over here. He asked the prophet to come back. He said, oh, no, no, I can't go back. He said, oh, no, no, I'm a prophet too. An angel of the Lord told me to tell you to come with me. He went back with the mate and all that. What happened? Prophet said, you're dead. Why would that prophet disobey God? This guy told him a lie. He contradicted what God told him. So he deserved what he got. Because he knew God's word personally, right? To those much is given, what? Much is required, right? To the man who did not know his master's will will receive fewer stripes. But the man who knew will receive many more stripes. The parable there in Luke 12 is believer and non-believer. Study it well. The scriptures distinguish the church from Israel. The nation of Israel is the wife of Yahweh, put away by divorce. Jesus rejected her in Matthew 23, 37, 39, weeping over Jerusalem. You shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. The church is the bride of Christ, a virgin, looking to be wed with Christ. Paul clearly says, For I am jealous over you. With godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, as I present you as a chaste virgin before to Christ in Second Corinthians eleven two. There's a big difference. Israel, the church, the bride. God will allow blindness in Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in in Romans eleven twenty five through twenty seven. Once the church is removed, God will deal with Israel once again. So do not believe replacement theology that is taught by Fuller Seminary, by APU, by Biola, by Talbot, and all the other Christian quote quote seminaries. There's a big difference between the church and the nation of Israel. The scriptures declare the eminent return of Jesus for his church. The Corinthians were eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 tells us. The Thessalonians turned from idols to the living God, waiting for him to come from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 9 and 10. To be delivered from the wrath to come. How much clearer can you get it? The Thessalonians were told by Paul that the day of the Lord would come as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, as we've said. So we've got all kinds of scriptures. The parabolic teaching of Jesus emphasized the eminent return for his bride. Like the parable of the faithful and evil servant 
and the talents in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. So, eminent means he can come back at any time. We, the church, are always to be looking for the coming of the Lord for his church. We're to live in such a way every day. Be careful of the philosophy of my Lord delays his coming. And then he says you begin to suck him down and puff him out and everything else. And you look just like the world. And in such a time as you think not, the Lord comes. The scriptures deliberately give us signs to watch for. A likeness of the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. If we're not there, God help us. When they do come, because they are here. I believe the last line of God's judgment is the acceptance and the promotion of homosexuality. I believe that's where God will draw the line. And we are there. Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned very clear. The days of Noah. You go back to the days of Noah, why God destroyed it. Look at chapter 6. The sons of God took the daughters of men. Those are angels. A move to world unity and ecumenicalism. You heard the Pope. You've heard Obama. Both of them said whoever doesn't believe climate change is not a leader. Really? Wow. So they're the authority, huh? <laughs> the time of ungodliness, wickedness, and lack of family love. Hello? A cry for peace and safety that will result in sudden destruction. Ecumenicalism, just to love one another. So who's the opposer? Who's the restrainer? Who's the one that's making things not work? The conservative? The Christian? The veteran? The one who sold out the doctrine? Because we're not ecumenical. We're sold out to objective truth. We're sold out to Christ Jesus. So we're the obstructionists. You understand? Simple. A return of the Jews to the land of Israel as a nation once again. These are all key things, ladies and gentlemen. They're all here. Now, whenever anything learned or taught contradicts or destroys what I know to be true and foundational to my faith in the scriptures, I hang on to what I know is truth. So what I don't understand, I don't allow it to destroy what I do understand. Simple. The law warns about the prophets of God who would be tested. He would test his people's love by sending false prophets, allowing them. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. The severity of attacks of God's word was indicative of the penalty of death. False prophets. They're in Deuteronomy 13, 8 through 11. He says, you inquire, and if you're true, and if it's true, you, you're the first one there, you stone them to death. Now, that doesn't mean we stone people to death today, but we're to examine, right? We're to mark them. You're a false prophet. There's the door. Get out of here. Simple. The believer is to be a good Berean, Acts 17, 11. Examine, find out of those things or so. Weigh out the importance of doctrine, that which cannot be compromised and essential for the salvation of holy living, as Paul told Timothy, listen, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remind 
remain in Ephesus that you may change, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. First Timothy 1.3. Paul wouldn't fit in with the Pope. Paul wouldn't fit in with the laws of the day. Till I come, give attention to reading, exhortation, to doctrine. First Timothy 4.13. Now, most of the church is saying, oh, let's not fight about doctrine. Let's just love one another. No, no, no. That kind of love gets funky. If you don't have doctrine, it gets pretty dirty. Okay? It gets pretty carnal. Take heed to yourself to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. First Timothy 4.16. That's a good one. First you, then others. Doctrine. 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 They will know you by your love. But the focus is the heart of that and the foundation of that is doctrine. So Paul reproved them for what they believed the folly to reject. Notice third, verse three. Paul re-instructed them on what they had forgotten. The faithful word to receive. Here is the application in these three verses. Verse five. Notice, Paul instructed them that believers are to watch for various means of deception. The word deceive there means to be God, seduced wholly entirely. Sin nature can deceive us. Self can deceive us. Satan can deceive us. Sinful man can deceive us. There's a whole bunch of things that can deceive us. He's talking to Christians. Do you think you can be deceived? You think Christians can be deceived? Why write the epistles then? Why warn the believer? Simple. The method is described by any means, be it spirit, prophecy, or the word of teaching, be it a letter. Doesn't matter. Either, either one of them be mentioned. Any which way. Then notice Paul instructed them that the day of the Lord will not come unless two things occur. These are very important. The falling away comes first. The phrase falling away, apostasia, because the word apostasy, it means deflection from the truth to forsake. Now, I'm, I'm not that smart. Listen. For you to forsake something or move away from something, you have to be there. Simple. Okay? So, the only one that can do that is a Christian. Non-believers aren't there. Non-believers don't believe. Non-believers can't deceive. They can infiltrate. But he's talking about those who forsake the truth. Alright? You can't ever leave this building if you never arrived here. You can't get out of your car unless you get in it. You cannot take your socks off unless you put them on. You don't need a PhD. You just need to use your brain. The word in classical Greek is used of political and military rebellion. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses for a rebellion against God. The phrase is found one of the time in the New Testament as Paul was accused by the Jews of telling the Jews to forsake the law of Moses in Acts 21, 21. They hated him. The root word is epistemi, meaning to remove Something 
It could refer equally to the departure of the removal of the church from the earth, but I don't think it does. Indirectly, yes, but not directly. The reason being, the article is present in the Greek. It isn't speaking about another of many rebellions that will occur from time to time in the latter days, but the rebellion or the falling away of the world. Different from 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 3, the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith through seducing spirits. That's periodic falling away. This is the falling away. The church is restraining the full force of evil. When the rapture happens, the Antichrist appears. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-7, Revelation 4 and 5. So in other words, we are the only means to restrain the full onslaught of evil. We vote, we talk against abortion, against pornography, against evil, against all kinds of stuff. Once the church is removed, this is going to be a dark place. Think of a car with brakes coming down the mountains and it loses its brakes. That's what's going to happen to the world. We are the only restrainer. Once the church is removed, there will be no restraint and the Antichrist will have full power and authority and the world will be one as they are shooting for. And there will be no one to say no to them. Everybody will bow their knee. Those who don't will die. Remember, the Antichrist appeared with a white horse, a bow and arrows in chapter 6. He conquered through diplomacy. And make Obama look like a Girl Scout. Brownie. I think that the falling away has begun. And the removal of the church will complete this particular falling away. The late J. Vernon McGee, prior to his death, believed we were in the period of the last falling away. I agree with him. Notice the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's the second thing that has happened. The man of sin depicts the character of lawlessness, rebellion, and opposition to God. He appears as a result of the falling away, verse 6 through 8. He cannot, he cannot appear until the removal of whatever that restrainer is. Now, let me caution you. People say, that's the Holy Spirit's removed. No! People are saved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here. And when we're removed, the Holy Spirit's still going to be here. But the non-believer doesn't obey the Holy Spirit. It's the physical presence of that which restrains. The Holy Spirit is not obeyed by the non-believer. So when someone tells you that it's the Holy Spirit that's removed, they're crazy. I was shocked. I was listening to the radio about a month ago. And uh, um, Pastor Jeremiah in, 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 in San Diego said that. I was shocked. I was floored. I was driving. I go, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. It's the church that's removed, not the Holy Spirit. The word revealer, apocalypsis, means to unveil. The tense is the errors, a definite time, the veil will be removed. The implication is that if the falling away has already begun, then it means he could be on the earth and possibly is alive today. So in other words, if we're really close, the Antichrist could be alive. If we're not, then he's not. But if we look at the signs, could be. 
but don't put dates. Look at the signs. Be faithful and be diligent. And pull people out of the fire. He has many other titles and names in the Old Testament, New Testament. Antichrist is used by John. It's kind of just stuck with him, but it's the least that's, that's used. And, um, and the son of perdition describes his destiny, doom and destruction. The phrase is used to describe only two people. It is used of Judas Iscariot in John 17, 2. It is used to describe the Antichrist in our text. The only two people that are described by that phrase. No other. Judas Iscariot was possessed by Satan. Luke 22, 3. John 13, 27. Jesus was the epitome of the incarnation of God. The Antichrist will be the epitome of the possession of, of Satan. He's not the incarnation of Satan. He's the epitome of the possession of Satan. There's a big difference. Incarnation, possession, two different things. Now, you as parents know how often you have, have had to reinstruct and remind your children on things that they know already. Like you have to remind them to make their bed, shut the refrigerator door, turn off the lights, pick up their dirty clothes, take out the trash, and you've been telling them this since they were five years old and they're 18 today. You understand, Paul? The scriptures give us the day of the first coming of the second coming of Jesus to the earth to set up the kingdom. But no one knows the day and the hour of the rapture. It's very, very clear. Daniel tells us the day of the first coming of Jesus. In the 70th week of Daniel, we are told, Daniel 9, 24 through 26, the 483 years, May 14, 445 B.C., all the way to April the 6th, 32 A.D., right to the day. The years are predicted on a 360-day Babylonian calendar, or calendar of Genesis, by the way, which is 173,880 days. It's a 360-day calendar, not 65, the Gregorian calendar. That's the biblical calendar, which is the prophetic calendar. Jesus wrote on Jerusalem, the very day of fulfillment in Zechariah 9.9. The very day, fulfilling that prophecy. Jesus lamented that the Jews did not recognize him at his first coming. He wept over them. If, this, if you had known this your day, the things that were prepared for you for your peace, Luke 19.41.42. He threw it away. Daniel again tells us of the day of his second coming. From the setting up of the abomination that causes desolation. You ready for it? 1,290 days. Daniel 12, 11. This, the second coming of Jesus. Not the rapture. If you're left behind, when you see the temple and you see the Antichrist in the temple and he calls himself God, count down 1,290 days, I'll be coming back with Jesus. The only time you find me on a horse. Jesus gave this as a sign of marking the middle of the tribulation, Matthew twenty four fifteen. Paul says the Antichrist will declare himself to be God in the temple. It will be rebuilt. Second Thessalonians two four. Revelation eleven one and two. The time is given in days, months, and years, ladies and gentlemen, so we cannot miss it. Days, months, and years. You can't miss it. 
The day of the rapture of the church, no one knows. But the day of the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Mark thirteen, thirty-two. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Hebrews ten twenty-eight. For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. First Thessalonians 5, 2. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. First Thessalonians 5, 4, 2 Peter 3, 10. The day that the rapture of the church occurs will be simultaneous with the day of the Lord, the wrath, which the church is not appointed to. Romans 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Revelation 3, 10. The hour. This is also the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. The covenant that, Antich- that Israel makes with the Antichrist. Daniel 9, 27. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Jacob's trouble. Synonymous. The last three and a half years will be a time of God's wrath, known as the Great Tribulation. Tribulation, first three and a half. Great Tribulation, last and a half. In the middle, the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 15. The temple, the Antichrist, declares himself God. Everybody has to worship. Everybody has to take his mark. Wow. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you shall also appear with him in glory, Colossians 3, 4 says. What a great scripture. The church accompanies Jesus to set up the kingdom, coming on white horses in the clouds as lightning out of the east, and every eye will see him. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 tells us. Revelation 1, 7. Matthew 24. Over and over again. Deception is the nature of man, for due to condition of his heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. Examine everything to the scriptures and stick to them. The mere truthful facts, Acts 17, 11. Do not be deceived through newspaper theology or the trends that come and go. Listen to 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Simple. Paul instructed them again on what they had forgotten, the faithful word to receive. Every generation has had these scriptures. Every generation has faced the same longing. Every generation has had to be the church. Every generation has been looking for Jesus to come. And you know what? No generation is ever disappointed. Because he's right on time. Paul comforted the Thessalonians regarding false teaching about the day of the Lord. Reminding them of what they knew. Reproving them for what they had believed. And re-instructing them on what they had forgotten. Paul sound like a parent? (laughs) Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope we have in you, Lord, and how faithful you are. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that you just minister to us. And, Lord, that we don't fall prey to the 
intellectual deception from within the church, the emotional, the carnal, all things that go on, Lord. We, we are carnal enough ourselves. We don't need any help. And so, Lord, we pray we stay in the word, we stay in your grace and, and follow your word. And that you would give us wisdom to reach many, Lord, and that we would just stay grounded in you and allow you to deal with us and to lead us. And, Lord, we want to thank you for your provisions, how you provide for us, that we're able to reach out and to do things, Lord. And we thank you, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You are the only one that can repent. God, through his Holy Spirit, has allowed you to see your need of salvation. He has allowed you to see that you are an enemy of God, has wrath upon you, but he loves you, he died for you, and that if you look to him and you repent of your sins, you will be saved by grace through faith. But you have to repent by the conviction of the Holy Spirit as he woos you. Now the ball's in your court. He will not force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to go there. You can make that decision. And Jesus will honor that. So if you want to be born again, or maybe you're over the internet, you can say this prayer right now. By grace through faith, God's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. Give me a brand new heart, Lord. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.